Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the conclusion of Clear and Convincing, Episode 17, Commonwealth of Virginia versus Roger Keith Coleman. I want to start off with an apology to our guests, Martha and Shauna of Murder in the Mountains. We were having such a great conversation that we ran into a third hour. So if anybody was listening, we uh, have another hour waiting for you in the archives. Michael tried to warn me several times that we were approaching our cutoff. And I failed to see any of his discreet messages. Michael, in the future, you're free to speak up and give me a blunt verbal warning. Tonight, we'll conclude our discussion (laughs) of the post-execution testing of DNA evidence in Coleman's case. And we were talking about the, uh, when we got cut off, the testing that was ordered by Governor Warner. But I wanted to go back real quick to kind of expand on the request that was made by the Globe newspaper, which was the Boston Globe, and I think they were joined by the Washington Post and a couple of other um, media outlets as well as uh, some anti-death penalty groups. And basically what they were trying to argue was that under Virginia's Freedom of Information Act and or the First Amendment, which governs access to the courts, um, that they had a right to obtain the evidence in Coleman's case and to subject it to testing and then publicize those results. Um, Their request was denied at the trial court, and the Virginia Supreme Court reviewed that ruling and basically found that the definition of access does not include gaining possession or testing of evidence in a criminal case outside of police and or defense teams, defendants. Um, And there's a reason for that um, because if you allow testing by outside third parties in one case, then outside third parties could come in and demand testing in another case. And it would make it difficult for the courts to control and regulate the testing and ensure that it was fair to everyone. Um, Especially, and, and, you know, there would be chain of custody issues and, 
and things of that nature. So they found that uh, access does not include possession and testing to create new evidence in a criminal case. And they also found under FOIA that the, the evidence was not a public record under Virginia's FOIA. And so there was no right of access to testing under that theory. Um, so that, you know, that's, it's not Virginia was trying to protect itself or, or anything along those lines. It was purely a legal, the papers advanced their legal argument and their constitutional argument. And the, the Virginia Supreme Court analyzed it. And you know, made their ruling. Uh, and interestingly, the papers did not try going to federal district court or the court of appeals for the Fourth Circuit or even the U.S. Supreme Court to to push this issue, this issue, or try to expand huh. First Amendment access and freedom of information. Right, but. The pressure on the state of Virginia continued, and so in 2006, when Governor Warner, who, as I mentioned, was Elizabeth Taylor's former stepson when she was married to his father, John, um, he was getting ready to leave office, and he decided to go ahead and order testing on the evidence. To put the controversy to bed one way or another, um, he was a little worried what the results might be, <clears throat> but he you know he wanted to do he thought that was the best thing to do or the right thing to do and a lab in Toronto, Canada was chosen. The evidence was sent to that lab by Edward Blake, who had done the original DNA testing. And it was early January. On January 12th, the results came in, and Governor Warner was able to announce that Roger Keith Coleman was guilty. The DNA proved that the chances were like one in 19 million that the person who raped and murdered Wanda McCoy was someone other than Roger Keith Coleman. Right. And since then, there have been comments on some stories that Wanda and Roger were having an affair, and he did go by and he did sleep with her, but when he left, she was alive. But that's all just rumor and innuendo. It's not... There's no evidence to support that. And I think when we were talking to Shauna and Martha, you know, there's there's really no evidence that aside from knowing each other as acquaintances in school, that there were any relationships among Wanda and Brad or Wanda and Roger prior to Wanda and Brad getting together in 78. And 1981, or 1980, when when uh, Coleman married Wanda's sister. 
But, you know, people want to try and they want to still have someone innocent executed to impugn the death penalty. Oh, of course. And so they're trying to find a way to say, well, he, you know, he had sex with her, but that doesn't prove he killed her. So, um, and that's a lot like Rodney Reed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really, actually, the similarities do sound pretty striking. Right, except that Coleman never made the claim that he and Wanda were having any kind of an affair or anything of that nature. He denied having anything to do with Wanda's murder. He denied ever being in her house. He denied, you know, ever having anything to do with her. He denied raping her. So given that he didn't advance that theory, and that would have been an interesting thing for him to do in 1990 when those early DNA tests, did not exclude him and actually narrowed the pool of people from 10% of the population to 2% of the population. And the argument was actually made that statistically taking the blood type and secretor and the PCR DNA, the pool goes down to 0.2%. Mm-hmm. When you combine those those two statistics, um, I don't know right. whether that's accurate or not. As we know, my skills in math are painfully, painfully deficient. So I'll leave that to. <laughs> statistics. You throw a number out there, and I'm just gonna be like, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, she right. Sounds right. Yep. <laughs> so, all right. So that concludes Roger Keith Coleman. Um, and he was. I don't think that the people who smeared others' names and and um, and basically were horribly derogatory about the entire town of Grundy. None of them really, to me, apologized enough. Uh-huh. For, you know, basically arguing that someone who was guilty of sin wasn't. And throwing everything against the wall to see what sticks uh, in an effort to try and advance their cause. Mm-hmm. So, um and it's still it come the the name comes up. Uh in fact I was reminded of it when Sedley Alley's family filed their claim in Tennessee, which we will talk about in a couple of weeks. It's funny how all these cases play together. Mhm. Yeah. So I think that wraps him up. Uh, he was guilty. Well, of course he was. And the the town of Grundy got an undeserved uh, 
reputation from outsiders who didn't know what they were talking about. Right. And as I told Shauna and Martha last night, who probably wouldn't have survived a week in, you know, that lifestyle and that, that town. Right. So, all right. Okay. Well, I guess let's wrap her up. I guess, yes, wrap her up, put a bow on her. All right. Um, Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. You can watch Shauna and Martha and Murder in the Mountains on their Facebook page or on their YouTube page where you can subscribe and help them get to their uh, YouTube channel. Join us next week on Monday, July 8th, 2019 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for the first episode in a subcategory that we're calling Mad Doctors. We'll look at cases of medical doctors who have run afoul of the law. The first episode, State of Texas versus Leon Philip Jacob, will talk about Jacob, an unlicensed doctor from Houston, Texas, who claimed to be desperately in love with his ex-girlfriend, Megan. His expression of that love included stalking her and ultimately hiring a hitman to kill her. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.